Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, my name is Kelly Brownell, and I'm the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University, and delighted to welcome our most recent guest for a podcast, Professor Rogan Kirsch from New York University. At NYU, Rogan is associate dean of the Wagner School and is a professor there and teaches around a number of issues on political science. Um, professor Kirsch did his undergraduate training at Wake Forest University, then received his PhD in political science from Yale University. Spent some time at Yale as a Robert Wood Johnson scholar, uh, then joined the faculty at Syracuse University where he taught for a number of years and did research in the political science arena. More recently, he was recruited to NYU where, as I said, he serves as associate dean. I know Rogan best for his work, not on politics in general, for which he's very well known, but more specifically, the work he's done on the politics of food, nutrition, and obesity, which I think is among the most insightful types of, of that kind of work in the field that, that's going on at the moment. So, Rogan, welcome. Thank you, Kelly. Great to be here. Delighted to have you here. And I'd like to begin with a, the, the a historic point of view that I think you take uniquely on this issue. There's so many things that can be done on the political front with obesity. Government can stand back. Government could get involved. Government can regulate. There can be litigation uh, against the government. I mean, there's so many different possibilities that go on. And it's interesting to try to project into the future about where this will all go, and I'm not sure that anybody really knows. But one important point you make is that history is instructive in this. And you talk about how in other arenas there have been things that start to resemble what's happening with food and obesity now. So let me lead off with a question regarding that. Um, can you give us an example or two of how the, the history in some other areas might mimic what's going on with food, nutrition, and obesity, and talk a little bit about what some of the critical elements are of those historical changes? Sure, Kelly. I'm working with a colleague, Jim Marone, up at Brown. I've done some years' worth of historical research into analogs, if you will, for what we see now in the food, nutrition, obesity policy realm. Uh, and the interesting place to start is people don't, didn't think of this as a policy realm for a long time. What would the government, the public sphere, be do, doing meddling in what is really considered one's private and individualistic and personal responsibility realm of food and nutrition? And you mentioned, I know, that, that our, our perception of the U.S. government is it doesn't do such things. Precisely. We, we think of the government as, you know, we're an individualistic people who resist big government. We don't like government intruding in our private lives. Sure, they can build the roads and take care of the defense, but never does the U.S. government intrude into the lives we live at home. And yet, when you look at U.S. history, all the way back, basically, you see lots of examples where the government has been quick to leap into people's individual lives. So the four analog areas from public health um, that we've written about are alcohol, drugs, sex, and tobacco. In all of those areas, um, what was once considered someone's completely personal and private, what they drank, what they smoked, what drugs they took, what kind of sex they had with whom, completely private except subject to maybe social um, mores, um, became realms of elaborate regimes of government intervention and uh, in some cases, outright prohibition. For example, the constitutional amendment that for 15 years in our own, almost our own time in the 20th century, uh, prohibited consumption and sale of alcohol in this country. So you really see a, um, an interesting array of histories of government intervening, sometimes in what we might think of as indelicate, brutal, sledgehammery kinds of ways in the public health realm around these issues. Now, the work that Jim and I did looked at what does it take to move from something being considered completely private and personal 
to an, a legitimate subject of public regulation. Lots of things have remained private. You know, the government still doesn't interfere with certain things we do, but they have in these public health, once private realms of, again, alcohol, drugs, tobacco, sex, and perhaps food and nutrition. So you've asked the question about whether food might go in a similar direction. Precisely. And, and have traced, I know, some of the historical things that have happened in the other, other areas and have distilled this into some key ingredients, I know. Exactly. I mean, you look, at, you look for things like um, social disapproval, which it, it's very, very rare that you get major government regulation or activity without a large portion of American society saying this once fine act or practice or substance consumption is now wrong. It used to be fine to drink large amounts of rum. Americans drained, you know, enormous amounts um, and preferred it to water back when water wasn't so healthy in the 19th century. And then a combination of social disapproval and medical science came along and said, this isn't something that's that good for you. And, and consumption of rum dropped dramatically, 75% in just a few years. And you can see this in these other areas as well. Um, you know, tobacco used to, smoking used to be a, you know, considered, if anything, a kind of sexy um, cool, desirable act, and it eventually turned into something that was performed by, you know, noxious, um, backwards, undesirables. And food has an interesting trajectory, or, or the condition, and more specifically, of being overweight or obese has an interesting trajectory here, too, in this sort of social disapproval realm. You see, as, as not much more than a century ago, a kind of desirability associated with being well-formed or pleasingly plump. And that changed dramatically as Americans um, increasingly turned towards an ideal of thinness that now creates a sort of impossible standard that, that, as I'm sure you've discussed before on these podcasts, is difficult to live up to. So you get things like social disapproval, um, medical science, self-help groups that start to move things from perfectly acceptable private acts to something that actually is a source of public regulation. <clears throat> but not until you get some more powerful political movements do things become the subjects of of actual legislative or executive branch um, prohibitions or other kinds of regulatory So in activity. some ways, all those things coalesce into a public saying, there's a problem here and Precisely. somebody needs to pay attention to it. Right. And people aren't going to control it on their own. They've shown their inability to do that. So somebody needs to take action. Precisely. Right. There ought to be a law. It's that quintessential American phrase. But it takes a long time in public health for something to get to the point where we say it ought to be. There ought, as, as a people, there ought to be a law. But once we do, we tend to put some big pushes on. For example, we typically, as Americans, have demonized whatever the industry or producer of some now unpopular substance is. It wasn't enough to say alcohol is not so great for you. Let's try to reduce our consumption. We had to literally demonize the industry that produced it. Demon rum is, is the, the popular term from back then. Um, the Anti-Saloon League and some um, organize, organized movements around that really went after um, these is not, again, people producing something that wasn't as popular or healthy as it used to be, perhaps, but as industry peddling poison, particularly to children. Children become a kind of political agent or football frequent in these debates. And, you know, to move a government as big and unresponsive in some cases with as many veto points, to use political sciences, as ours has, you need to push extra hard. And this demonization of the industry producing things that are now undesirable, like alcohol or tobacco, is a key feature of that. Somewhat more disturbingly, although it's disturbing to see demonization happen in politics because it tends to result in criminalized policies rather than good, thoughtful public health solutions, more disturbing in some ways is demonization of the users. You don't see, for example, drugs 
become a real subject of public policy in this country until it passes from middle and upper class users to folks on the economic margins in American life, uh, minorities, immigrants, foreigners, who are seen and easily portrayed as bringing their self-destructive products and practices into American cities. Um, so the kind of demonization of the other within capital O is also an unfortunately typical feature of these anti-various um, things crusades. So to change drugs from, a, you know, again, something everybody used or frequently used to a prohibited substance, there was a demon, concerted campaigns of demonization against Chinese, for example, smoking opium, or black men using cocaine, seen as cocaine fiends, as the term went back then. That becomes a real trigger. The kind of fear that that creates becomes a real trigger for politicians to finally step in and say, all right, the people have, uh, there's something they don't like, and there's real problems out there. We're going to have to take action. You know, the de yeah, I know you're not done with your list of triggers, and I'd like to make sure we get through them, but I'd like to talk about demonization just a little bit more. Um, as you know, at the Rudd Center, we, we care a lot about bias, stigma, and discrimination aimed at overweight people. And, and our belief is that you can stigmatize the condition without stigmatizing the people who have it. So having compassion for people who have AIDS or are depressed or alcoholic would be an example of that. And we think that the same sort of view is warranted in the case of obesity and hope to fight off the stigma and discrimination. The demonization of the industry is an interesting issue, <clears throat> and you characterize it as, as a, an, a, an undesirable consequence of what's, what could be building in that um, demonization. I mean, I, I'm not, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it sounds like you're saying the demonization is inherently bad because it leads down some bad paths, criminalization, and things like that. So the question I have is if you created a list of characteristics that might lead you to demonize an industry. Let's take the food industry as an example. What might be on that list? And could an industry ever pass the threshold for, for deserving to be demonized? So, for example, you said that uh, peddling deadly products to children uh, is something that often gets evoked in this discussion to demonize industry. But could one make the claim, and I'm not expecting an answer to this question, but could one could potentially make the claim that industry does peddle unhealthy products to children and does so in very powerful and persuasive ways. Um, do they encourage overconsumption to an unhealthy level of products? Well, some people claim that they do. So you could create a checklist of sure. things that would, in, would represent misbehavior by the industry that might warrant the, the demonization that occurs. Now, I'm not saying that industry does does all those things or that they warrant demonization. But could you ever see, see getting to the point where, sure, the behavior is so bad that, that demonization is okay and is an important part of creating the social movement? The problems with demonization tend to rest more with, in, in these past examples at least, tend to rest more with the demonizing of users, which tends to pick on the least well-off, the dispossessed, the folks at the margins, as I said. Um, demonizing industry it can lead to some excesses, and it can lead in some cases to, I mean, to give you a specific example, it's probably probably a, a good thing that there's alcoholic beverages for sale um, within a regime of regulation in this country. And we don't tend to demonize the liquor, that version of the beverage industry. Um, today, we recognize them as producing things that in excess can be dangerous and therefore try to restrain them within legitimate bounds. It took us a lot of years to get to that place though and what used to happen is people would go with a sledgehammer at again so-called demon rum and actually prohibit the manufacture or sale of that product altogether. Um, there are things that industry does 
And it's an interesting, I haven't thought about creating a checklist before, but one certainly could. Um, you've given a couple powerful examples, peddling poisonous or dangerous products to children um, in ways that uh, shape their habits and can contribute to unhealthy behaviors. Um, deceptive or false advertising could be on that list. Claiming something is good for you or contains less unhealthy aspects than it used to when in fact it's, they've just, to give one example of the food industry, taken out some fat and added a bunch of sugar. Right, and um, so if you think of the food industry that engages in so many behaviors and there are so many players, uh, instead of demonizing an industry or right. a particular food, you, you could, um, I, I guess if not demonize, criticize certain practices. Precisely. I mean, I would, I would look, I'd put it the same way you did when you discussed how the Rudd Center and other you know, thoughtful, nuanced advocates talk about obesity and overweight. You don't want to, you know, stigmatize the person. You want to look at the behavior involved. I don't think we need to stigmatize the food industry as a whole or even, in, even large parts of it, even the, you know, fast food producers of it. But look at the behaviors. I mean, are, are, are they... In the bound, within the larger bounds of producing something that you know, arguably people need to live, although it depends on the food product, are they you know, enhancing portion sizes dramatically to tap into people's worst self-destructive kinds of eating habits? Um, are they making false and misleading claims? Are they um, maximizing empty calories uh, because it's a little cheaper to put in a bunch of corn syrup than to try to find some kind of healthy alternative? So I, I'm, I'm going to take the same page from you and say, criticize and seek to reshape destructive activities, but demonizing an industry itself, I mean, there's some that arguably deserve to be demonized, and we could, you know, probably you would come up with a list of those and agree on it. But when you're in the area of food and nutrition, it's, it is complicated because the same enormous companies, Kraft, say, that, that make some products that, you know, if they disappeared from shelves tomorrow, no one's health would be threatened the least, also make things that are, are part and parcel of essential living. Well, you make an important point. Whether or not you, I mean, however you feel about the industry, you, you make the important point that uh, to demonize it is to go down an unproductive road. Right. That, that you create a lot of enemies in the process who might then come to the defense of the industry, whereas you criticize a particular activity of an industry, you might not have those same enemies. Plus, it can lead down, it can lead down the road of overcorrection and over-legislation and things like that. It's an important and powerful political point. It's basic to American politics, and I'm glad you made it that way. I mean, when we've seen crusades, and the, the term, the religious connotation of that term is not, is not undeliberate, when we've seen crusades against particular producers, they tend to get their backs up, as you might imagine. They fight back in all kinds of ways um, involving, you know, lobbying campaigns and so on that, that can result in blunting whatever kind of positive change you hope to bring about. Um, I can't think of too many examples where out-and-out -out demonization of a particular, in this case, corporation or industry um, has resulted in beneficial long-term legislative or regulatory effects. What tends to happen is we over-regulate, we ban or get rid of or prohibit completely. You know, most of the things, most of the examples I can think of of the things being produced are, th are, are substances people want in one way or another. I mean, you know, the so-called drug industry is a, is, a, is a difficult one here, but even within the, the large term considered drugs, you get pharmaceutical products which are essential and helpful to life, and you get, you know, black market rogue substances, which are, are more conducive or, or aid death. Um, so to me, it's identify the product or the substance or the practice that is destructive and figure out ways um, to regulate or proscribe or work with that. And 
the, the examples, and this is tricky ground too politically, but examples of cases where regulators, public officials have tried to work with industry, um, have tried to reshape and come up with some kind of, of uh, difficult to do, but come up with some kind of regime under which you know, something can still be produced and sold in, in quantities and amounts that are, that are beneficial, um, has tended to be more fruitful than uh, the kind of pitchfork politics that we so often see in this realm. One of the other triggers that you write about for social change is the, the arena of social movements. And you, you discuss, I know, how that has happened in some of these other arenas, and I'd be curious to hear your comments on that. And then uh, whether you think that applies to the food and nutrition area. And I know you uh, think of litigation in that context. Please right. Explain. So, nice question. And, and, and it speaks again to these so-called seven triggers of moving issues from completely private to something like uh, realm of public regulation. And we've mentioned almost all of them. I'll just run through them for listeners who are interested. Um, social disapproval until society condemns something. It doesn't become a uh, a real problem of government regulation, it turns out, in the public health realm. Medicalization, you've got to see this as a medical problem. Self-help, America is dotted with these self-help movements which spring up to help people lead healthy lives. And it turns out, Kelly, that when reformers become frustrated, when their message of uplift and improvement isn't heard by everyone, that's when they start turning to demonization. First, this industry is peddling poison, and then it's a second demonization kind of trigger. Number five on our list is demonization of the users. Again, these foreigners and minorities and people at the margins. And then you get this social movement point where in the past, at least, large groups of Americans marching on mass in organized fashion to try to bring about political change have been remarkably successful. And one, one sort of classic example is alcohol, where the Women's Christian Temperance Union, um, 200 to 300,000 women um, organized and staging marches around the country, had more to do with prohibition, getting alcohol prohibited than just about any other factor. It's hard to see a modern analog to that. We don't take to the streets in organized mass ways anymore. We're, we're a different kind of polity now. Uh, we don't as much live our politics in the streets as we do behind closed doors and often in courtrooms. And so some folks have suggested, and I've written about this with Jim Marone, that class action lawsuits or mass torts are a kind of modern substitute for the, the mass movement. It's not as sort of exciting. It's not as you know, people marching in the streets arouses uh, media attention and so on. But it has been in a very effective way. The tobacco case is a classic one where you get a series of um, legal actors joining together to try to reshape, an, again, an offending landscape, um, which has resulted in a, in a remarkable series of political successes, I think, through this litigation route. I'd say more generally about that as an important point, that public health policy and politics has in the last 20 years shifted, I think, dramatically. It may just be a blip, but it looks like a dramatic, possibly enduring kind of shift away from the actors we used to think of in Government 101 as making policy. Elected branches of government, legislative and executive, so Congress and the president at the national level, state houses and go governors at the state and local level, governors and mayors. That's how policy gets made. Those haven't been the main actors in reshaping the public health landscape from a public policy perspective for 20 years. Tobacco, asbestos, um, HMOs and Patients' Bill of Rights, so-called, so um, even cases as specific as Terry Schiavo and, and her feeding tube, all these were played out in the courts, not in our legislative and executive branches. Now, legislators weighed in, bills were introduced, presidents and members of Congress and governors and so on made pronouncements, but it's more and more been the courts that have been the locus of change around public health. So 
for those out there who want to really bring about a policy change in food and nutrition, if you don't at least have as part of your strategy some kind of litigation um, front, you're going to have a difficult time given the landscape of American politics as it looks presently. And to those who think lawsuits are wasteful and destructive, we become too litigious a society, this is, for better or worse, maybe even for worse, how we bring about change today. Because of lobbying, because of um, such a uh, sort of professional industry around politics that makes it difficult to bring about significant changes, especially in the public health realm, um, a court strategy needs to be part of you advocates who want to bring about a change in, in our example obesity and nutrition politics. I was at a meeting of the European Commission in Brussels at one point, and somebody in the audience asked um, me why Americans have to sue so much. Mm. And uh, somebody from England broke in before I had a chance to answer and, and basically responded to the question by saying that uh, because you have to, because the government is, is so uh, heavily controlled by business interests that public health loses out in that contest when the two come in conflict. And because the elected leaders are so heavily influenced by the business interests, they don't take action like they do in other countries. And therefore, the way you get a lot of public health action is through the courts. Um, and it's, from what you just said, that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's partly the power of business interests. But it's, I think it's also just this is a Byzantine system we have, um, our separation of powers, legislative and executive branches working, you know, sometimes together, but often at odds. There's so many places in the system where it's pretty easy or relatively easy to block or thwart or cut back or somehow stop some policy issue from moving forward that reformers in frustration have turned increasingly to the courts. There's a downside to that, though, I'll, I'll note. And for, again, for those of you who have, have strategies around um, advocacy, don't only adopt a court strategy because it turns out some, some interesting and powerful research suggests that the kinds of policies that courts are able to rule on aren't that enduring, in part because courts have almost no oversight authority or ability. A court will say, desegregate your schools, or everybody has to wear school uniforms, or tobacco has to you know, disappear from American lives in this set of ways. But courts are underfinanced. It's often a single judge who has a clerk or two. They don't have the resources later to go and check and see if this is actually happening. And frequently, advocates themselves will have to monitor and come back to court to get a second or third or tenth injunction to make sure that things are actually changing. So you really need a kind of strategy for advocacy and, and policy change where legal actors are coordinated with executive and legislative actors so that the latter two can carry out the work of implementation, oversight, and monitoring that has to take place for a even dramatic policy change to actually endure. Um, it's, a, it's a vital and important point because I see advocates in the areas of food and nutrition and elsewhere putting all their eggs, so to speak, in the judicial basket. And what they're missing is the downstream policy story is going to be not so positive for them. This is a very good research in a whole bunch of realms from civil rights to public health that court-ordered or imposed policy solutions are not as enduring, have a shorter half-life, as it were, um, than those that are brought about by our elected officials, hard as that may be to accomplish. And if I scan the landscape in my mind of advocacy groups that are working on food and nutrition, it seems... Um, quite common for them to focus only on legislative action and not on judicial action at all. And so your point that you have to consider these things in concert is a very interesting point and one that, that I don't think is very clearly articulated in our field. It's a separated branch system. It's 
again, got multiple veto points. You need a thoughtful strategy for change that looks to all these branches, creates advocates, files legal briefs, and so on, but does these things in concert. And I, mean, I have to say, you know, the work I see the Rudd Center doing um, has worked on all these fronts. I mean, there's legislative, there's executive. You've worked with um, mayors and governors in Connecticut, and you have this increasingly um, sophisticated legal strategy, or at least monitoring or making sense of the legislation of, of the judicial side of lawsuits that that I think is, I think is the only kind of political strategy that works in 21st century American political life. Well, if you think of a problem as complicated as obesity and poor nutrition in the population, you have economic, political, personal, biological drivers, and that just begins the list. So you really do have to address these things on many fronts. That's right. We've touched, actually, uh, inadvertently perhaps on the seventh of these triggers, for those of you keeping count. Um, you don't typically, in the American past at least, in these public health examples I've given, you don't actually get action in the end, policy action, until interest groups step in. Um, they are the ones who take these big popular policy ideas and translate them into specific plans. Um, it was, the, in, to, again, use a quick historical example, the Women's Christian Temperance Union got the attention for its anti-alcohol marches and so on, but it was the Anti-Saloon League, one of the first interest groups that, in, in the way we think of lobbyists today in, in the early 20th century, that got prohibition through the U.S. Congress. So you really need an interest group aspect or piece to this. It's very difficult to naively think today that, well, I'll just, you know, do a Mr. Smith kind of thing and take a smart petition to Congress or my state legislature and get it through. No, just as you want a guidebook to take you through a foreign country, you need some set of advocates who know the ways of Washington or your state capital to wend through the Byzantine legislative process and get things done. I think that sometimes, because lobbying has such a bad name in American life, it's such a term of disdain, sometimes advocates do like to go what they see as the pure, cleaner judicial or courts route. But again, you need that legislative strategy as well. If we look at uh, these triggers unfolding in the food and nutrition arena, and we think about how the food industry is responding and is likely to respond, are there lessons to be learned from tobacco and alcohol? When these industries were under attack, um, medical research was coming out suggesting ill effects of their, the use of the products, overuse certainly. Uh, there were concerns about marketing these products to children. Uh, the public opinion was turning against them. How did the industries respond? And is there something we can learn about the way the food industry is likely to go? It's a terrific question. I mean, in those past examples, the industries, because they tended to have become targets of demonization by the time this became an actual policy agenda item, by the time legislatures, either the national or local level, took it up, uh, they tended to really dig in their heels. Um, and in a way, who can blame them? I mean, it's a, it's a natural kind of, you know, second law of thermodynamics, action, opposite reaction um, kind of politics in this case. You know, if you're being called demon rum or, or big tobacco, and there's uh, somewhat to your surprise also years of favorable, even preferential treatment by legislators and policymakers has suddenly shifted gets very cold when the public turns against you and there's these scandals or you know, medical evidence and so on is starting to mount. It can get very cold in the policy realm. And uh, I think tobacco, for example, found itself going from a very favored industry, um, which made sure to keep doling out the favors in all, all different legislators' districts, to absolutely out of favor. And you know, the result was, uh, was powerfully punitive. Same thing with alcohol at the beginning of the 20th century. So I guess some lessons for industry, and I think the food industry has, has studied and learned these lessons pretty well, um, maybe too well in some cases, is 
Um, you want to pres- when they, when you start to stonewall, that only encourages legislators, particularly those uh, who are who have an interest in regulating you, um, to push harder themselves. So. What I watch for now in the food realm is an industry that seems to be embracing or working closely with it at it, what used to be its foes in the advocacy realm um, or encouraging some kind of legislative change. And that's, you know, it, I don't want to seem too cynical or skeptical, but take one example, that of menu calorie labeling, which has become a, a movement of sort in this realm. Um, food industry, after battering and blocking and halting and complaining and filing endless lawsuits itself, I will note parenthetically the food industry or the industries that are under attack in these public health realms have a very good legal strategy themselves, typically. Um, after doing all this, they suddenly sort of waved the white flag in recent months and said, you know what, calorie labeling's fine. Here's, in fact, some national legislation we think would, be, would solve the problem. Well, it turns out that the bill they got behind, the so-called LEAN, um, I can't remember what the acronym stands for, but it's L-E-A-N, uh, was uh, tantamount to almost no regulation at all, or, or almost no calorie labeling at all. You could stick it, you know, under the table or in the back of a uh, of some kind of pamphlet, and, and it wasn't nearly as it won't be nearly as effective. Almost every study will suggest um, as putting labels right up there on the menu board or right there with the food that you're about to to purchase at a, at a chain. Um, so somewhere between an industry digging in its heels and stonewalling and refusing um, any kind of change and a kind of you know, welcome into the happy circle of regulatory policy is, I think, where, where one wants to wind up. I mean, I know that various organizations have, have, with tobacco in mind perhaps, have tried to work with the food industry to encourage them to reformulate some of their products, to reduce the fat and sugar and, um, and salt content, and yet have them taste the same thanks to the miracle of modern food technology. Um, that seems to me an encouraging kind of movement. And in fact, in some cases, uh, at least um, anecdote has it, the, f- the food companies haven't triumphed or, or trumpeted these kinds of shifts, in part because they're, they're, they know that to say something is lower in fat and sugar and, and, and so on is going to induce people not to buy it. So that is one example of a, of a, of a kind of action where recognizing that almost like in a sports metaphor where you recognize you're going to play against another team and you want to be a good, fair competition, recognize the food industry is going to have interests and concerns that are antithetical to to nutrition advocates in some cases, but recognizing each other across the table, shaking hands and saying, all right, let's see if there's some third way, some alternate solution to getting to a place where you're still able to sell some, some products and they're going to be healthier or better or smaller portioned than what you've been selling so far. That feels like a policy uh, direction that might not even require um, government to step in and broker the change. One of the appealing aspects of your historical analysis is, is it suggests certain actions or certain strategies that the public health community may want to take in order to create maximum change. And in a sort of funny twist, you could almost see the advocacy groups, if they follow your strategic thinking here, that are most opposed to the industry, most would like to demonize them, least trust the industry, may at the public face of it want to avoid demonizing the industry because of some of those untoward consequences. And and I could see them at some point being in, a, in, a, in what now is uh, sort of a... Uh, going in a direction you couldn't really anticipate, which is coming into the defensive industry to avoid this process of demonization. Well, it's one more example of, I think, one theme that's, that's run throughout, or thread that's run throughout this conversation, that of uh, going after or criticizing bad practices without, I've got to use the verb again, demonizing an entire 
realm. So recognizing, acknowledging, embracing, even celebrating positive actions that seem genuinely in the public interest, in the interest of public health. And there are some examples of that. There are food, I mean, at the Rudd Center, there are some examples of, of saluting positive actions by various um, arms of the food industry. I mean, some things Pepsi has done, for example, seem genuinely positive. Um, and I think some combination of, uh, to use another cliche, I apologize to listeners who don't like cliches, but some combination of carrots and sticks um, where there are positive reinforcements for um, for beneficial activity and a continued level of monitoring, oversight, and awareness. I mean, there's a long history in American life of industries when they weren't demonized in the policy realm um, going along and submitting, sometimes even voluntarily, to regulatory change. And then we don't t pay attention much attention to what happens after. You need a kind of sustained monitoring, oversight, attention with legitimate penalties, but also legitimate sources of reward um, for uh, any kind of actor, industry in this case, but any kind of political actor um, in the policy realm who, who, who produces positive changes. Right, and, and definable and quantifiable metrics for industry behavior and progress. So as an example of this, we, we recently uh, received positive word that we're going to have a grant from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation to do a big project on food marketing to children. And one of our intents in this project is to develop an index of marketing practices where um, a, a given ad campaign can be scored on what type of food is being marketed, uh, what sort of activities are depicted in the marketing, like are kids being shown eating outside of meal times, are they being shown eating large amounts, things like that, and have a, a series of criteria that are arrived at by a, a board of public health experts with some industry input. And then there can be an objective scoring system for looking at marketing practices. And, and such an index would be able to score marketing, positive marketing practices as positive and negative ones as negatives, but it would be objective. And that way we can say that company A does three good things, 10 bad things, or 10 good things and three bad things, whatever it happens to be, but there, there can be a, a, a known metric that gets used to evaluate these things. And that's, that's our attempt to look at practices within, the, uni within the, the universe of food companies rather than just saying, well, this company is good or that company is bad and things like that. And it sounds like that's consistent with what you'd recommend. Completely. I mean, the, the easy work in political advocacy is to say what they're doing is wrong and it must change and keep the pressure up. And you need that kind of work to move things forward. But much harder is to say, all right, what they're doing is wrong, and here's some ways in which it could be made better, or which policy could, here's a set of things that could take effect that are actually feasible, um, could actually pass in the present political landscape. I mean, you want to be sensitive to context and nuance in these realms. So one nice thing about that is you all are coming up with a set of better practices, if not best, and worse practices, and you hope that um, some parts of the industry will respond by selecting from list A and, and removing some things from list B. Another piece to that, to that point you just made is also vitally important in politics and policy. The hardest work, I think, in, from a political science standpoint, the hardest work in some kind of policy effort is the monitoring and oversight down the road. I mean, set past the bill, everybody celebrates, and then the lights go off, and you know these poor bureaucrats are often left with some interest group watchdog monitoring and some industry or whoever is being regulated, government, on the other side. Um, the lights go off, and these folks you know, sort of have to toil away, and, and there's not as much reward or, or attention for their activities. But 
Now, it is not enough to get something desirable passed. You have to monitor it down the road. So creating metrics that are relatively easy, uh, first of all, understandable, then relatively easy to keep in place and continue to do it for not just a month or two after a policy has passed, but months and years and even decades, that's going to be so vital because there's a, there's a big or fetish in this country, I think, this individualistic country around self-regulation. We, we know what the problem is and we'll just take care of it ourselves. I think those are sometimes done with the best of intentions or at least reasonably good intentions. But over time, you know, the, the political or the, or, the, or the market landscape shifts. It becomes harder to, uh, to keep up these good acts and so on. I mean, that's where you need the work of dedicated um, think tanks and organizations like Rudd Center and um, monitoring groups in and outside government to make sure that whatever change has been achieved is sustained. And it's, it's, it's easy to say that, but it's, it's, it's incredibly important. And again, you like the headlines which say, you know, organization interest group X helped get this bill passed or, you know, clean, air is cleaned up because of the efforts of the Sierra Club or whatever. But it's the monitoring for years after that to make sure these changes actually go into effect and are sustained that matters so much in, um, in advocacy campaigns. Well, thank you, Rogan. This, it's a very insightful analysis and, as I said, a unique analysis of this issue. So I appreciate uh, the information that you brought to us today. To, to end on a positive note, um, I gather you and your colleague from Brown, Jim Marone, that you mentioned are wor working on a book on this issue. That's right. Is we've that been, uh, yeah, we've continued to uh, do our historical research, but also try to take it into the present and make as much sense as we can of both obesity and nutrition in the larger context of health policy and policymaking. That's sort of some of the, the things that have come up in passing here, the, the move to a judicial style of politics, um, the movement to regulate personal and private behavior. These kinds of themes and practices are are, are the sorts of things we're taking up in this book. We're tentatively calling it The World is Round um, as a kind of answer to The World is Flat um, because of the issues with obesity and nutrition all over the world. So um, we're, we're looking forward to finishing that up and, and having it out there for folks to take a look at. Great. Well, we look forward to seeing the book, and thank you for joining us. Kelly, this was a treat. Thank you. Our guest today was Rogan Kirsch, Professor Rogan Kirsch from New York University, Associate Dean at the Wagner School there. I um, invite you to come to the Rudd Center website at www.yalerudcenter.org uh, to see a variety of resources that we offer, including a free email newsletter, access to a blog, a variety of other resources, and, of course, the list of other podcasts that we've recorded. Thank you.